Proverbs 6 and verse 18 states that one of the things that the Lord hates that's listed there is a heart that devises wicked plans. And that may seem obvious to us that that's one of the things that God would hate. But sometimes when we think of sin or we think of evil, we only think of the act itself. And we fail to remember that God knows the heart, the heart that devises those things that are evil and wicked. As we're continuing our thoughts on Sunday nights from the book of Micah, we come tonight to chapter 2. And in this particular chapter, Micah chapter 2, we are told that that basically is exactly what's going on in the days of that prophet. But as we said last week, as we introduced these lessons on the book of Micah, that prophet is not primarily concerned, or at least he doesn't write as much or say as much, about the big uh, international headline type things. He mentions those things, but Micah is far more concerned with the local or even the personal things that are going on in his homeland. He was, as we said last week, in many ways a prophet of the common people. And he seems to have that mostly on his mind. And it seems that that's exactly who he was. Just just a common person, but one who was asked to do a very important task for the Lord. But not everybody, even at that time, cared for just the common person. If there was ever a time in the world when the phrase, the little man can't get ahead, it would have fit the time of Micah. Even those who were supposed to care for the citizens just didn't. They didn't have concern for just the everyday common person, especially those who weren't in the city of Jerusalem, but who were out in the fields or out in small villages in the kingdom. And that upset not only Micah, but it upset the heart of God. And that's why, at least in part, God sent this prophet to speak. We want to examine tonight Micah chapter 2 under three major headings. If you have the outline tonight, you see those. And as we said last week, we're not trying to do a verse-by-verse look at all these chapters and all the thoughts in here. But I think this chapter flows naturally into three parts. And thankfully, as we go through Micah chapter 2, it begins with something that's kind of disturbing. But thankfully, it moves to something that is far more hopeful. And that's where I hope it will end up tonight. But we have to begin with the negative because that's where the chapter begins. And so in the first place, in verses 1 through 5, the verses we read tonight for our scripture reading, we see oppression from the dawn or from the morning. In those verses we read just a few moments ago in our scripture reading, you find a very awful description, almost a shocking description, of what is going on in Micah's day. But it's all set up in the very opening line of this chapter, Micah 2, verse 1, where he says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. In other words, what Micah is saying is, there are people in this nation that that are lying awake in the morning, or they're waking up in the morning, or maybe even lying awake throughout the night, and all they have on their mind is devising plans to do things that are wicked and that are wrong. It is as if the consuming thought of their mind is how can I do something wrong to somebody when I wake up today, when I get out of bed today and go about my my daily work, my daily tasks. But as verse 1 ends, it tells us it wasn't just what was consuming their mind. They went on with it. When the morning dawns, Micah says, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. These people are not just being tempted. They're not just lying awake in the morning and and waking up and fighting off some temptations of, of how can I do evil today. They're devising plans and then spending their day going through with those wicked plans all throughout their days. 
Now, there may be something uh, of some significance, historical significance to the way this is worded. Because you see, by, by speaking of doing these evil things, notice it when the morning dawns, Micah may be showing that there is a, a legal nature to all this. You see, in a lot of ancient cultures, trials were held beginning at daybreak. And we still do that today somewhat. But the reason in a lot of ancient cultures that trials were held at daybreak was because it was meant to symbolize something. The picture was meant that the, the darkness of wickedness had had its time and now the daybreak of justice had begun. And so you begun trials when basically when the, the sun first came up to symbolize that light is now shining and all the things that have been done that are evil are about to be exposed in this uh, in this light. But those of Micah's day were so bent on doing what was wrong that they even performed their deeds right at the break of day when justice was supposed to be done. And some scholars have suggested that what Micah may have in mind here is that they were even using or misusing the legal system to accomplish the oppression of others. And verse 2 then speaks of the nature of their heart. They coveted. They coveted the things that that people needed even to survive. You see things in verse 2 like fields and houses. But they also took those things away as well as their hope for the future. If you notice the end of verse 2, he speaks about the reference to taking someone's inheritance. But God knew what was going on. He knew what started in the hearts and minds of these people. In fact, we won't read all these verses, but verses 3 through 5, the Lord basically spoke and said that this would not go on forever. But notice that in the middle of verse 3, he said the people shall not walk haughtily. The English Standard Version has. You see, God knew the pride. God knew the arrogance of the heart that led to the sinful actions that were going on throughout the nation. But God also said that these people were not as in charge as they thought they were. Notice again verse 5. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Now, what in the world is that talking about? Well, you have some indication of it at the end of verse 4, where he says uh, how he removes it from me to an apostate, he allots our fields. And then you say, well, that didn't clear it up just a whole lot for me. It didn't for me either when I was saying this, frankly. But you may remember under the old law, under the Old Testament law that we're studying, that uh, under which Micah served, that the people were supposed to be in the promised land. And you recall the last several chapters of the book of Joshua that are pretty tedious reading where the promised land is divided up under all these tribes. But there were also times where a family died, maybe a family died out. And their land then had to be reapportioned. It had to be reallotted among that particular tribe. It seems what was going on in Micah's time was that there were some who were seeing maybe a family die out or a family go through financial trouble who would then use their cunning to steal that land away through the legal system. That They would use whatever connections and influence they had to legally take that land in an oppressive way. And what God was now saying to the prophet Micah was, that's not going to go on forever. One of these days, you're going to show up for one of these trials or really kangaroo courts. And not only are you not going to be there, there's not going to be any agent to represent you there. Now, of course, we know by studying biblical history that God's people were very near to this, going to be taken into exile. And Micah may have been hinting at that in the background. 
But whether he meant the exile or whether he meant something that was coming more near, the Lord was telling these people that all those plans they had made in their beds, all those things they spent their nights and mornings devising, and all those actions they were going through, that is not going to last forever. And ultimately, it's going to end up being for nothing. Because God does not allow sin, and God does not allow pride and oppression to go on unabated forever. You see in this chapter... The beginning of the chapter is very negative because you have people who are sinning. Thankfully, God knows and God's not going to allow it to go on forever. But it's sad that God has to give that warning. And so you have oppression from the dawn or from the morning. Secondly, in this chapter, you see Micah speaking out against oppression in verses 6 through 11. In this section, Micah speaks out against what's going on. But he begins by revealing another problem that's common in the land at that time. You see, there were some in the, in the time of Micah who were calling themselves prophets. But they certainly weren't God's prophets. Because these people were not willing to say that any of this, one, was evil, or then two, that it would ever be punished. Everything was just going to go on just fine. After all, there was prosperity in the land, so why would anything bad ever happen? I want you to notice verse 6. Those who study the Hebrew language say this is a very difficult uh, verse to translate because you have a, a quotation, but they're not sure if only the first part of the verse or if the whole verse is a quotation. In full, the verse says this in the English Standard Version, Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Now, there are some scholars who suggest that only the first part, just the do not preach, that, that Micah is saying that's the message of these false prophets. There are others who suggest the whole verse is the message of the false prophets. Whichever way it is, and I only point that out because different translations word it different ways to where you can see either one of those. But whichever way this is meant, I believe a man named Trent Butler who wrote a commentary on Micah put it well when he said this about that verse. He said, Micah and his supporters face a group of prophets perhaps even employed by the temple, who deny the doom and gloom of Micah. They continue to promise prosperity while Micah demands a new way of life or destruction. I think that's all he's trying to get across. You've got false prophets going around the land saying everything's fine. There's prosperity in the land and it's going to go on forever. And you've got Micah along with other prophets, but Micah coming around saying it's not going to be fine forever. It's just not. And so with that as the background, then Micah goes into a fairly lengthy discussion, at least for a book this short, from verse seven through verse 11, where he speaks of what real righteousness looks like and what integrity looks like and how that stands in stark contrast to what's being preached and presented by those false prophets. In fact, in verse seven, Micah seems to be even mocking the teaching of the, the false prophets themselves. They were basically saying that things were still good, so it's not like God's patience would ever run out. It hasn't yet, so why would it ever run out? But good things were not going on. The prophets were uh, prophesying falsely, and obviously sin was going on. And in these verses, at least three things are listed to show that what Micah is talking about is contempt for their fellow man. First, in verse 8, it speaks of, the English Standard Version puts it this way, stripping the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. First time I read that, I said, 
What? <laughs> what does that even mean? Different translations have all kinds of different things because those who study the Hebrew language say this is a very difficult verse to translate. But what, what it likely has, at least at its background, is the, the false prophets were saying, you need to just feel secure, everything is fine, while they're going on their own way and undermining that security. In other words, they're giving two messages. One to the people that everything's fine, but then they're doing a message of their own that's going to make it where it's not fine. Second, verse 9 speaks of driving the women of my people from their delightful houses. And again, it seems like they're not doing this by force necessarily. They're not coming in with knives and swords and those sorts of things. They don't, they don't have to resort to some kind of fighting. They simply cared so little that they did not secure the houses of widows and others who were left with very little protection in that culture. And sometimes even drove the, these women out, especially widows out, simply through legal wrangling. And finally, the end of verse 9 states, From their young children, you take away my splendor forever. By not staying true to the Old Testament law, the children or the offspring were not going to be able to continue in the land that was rightly, rightfully theirs under the law. They would not know the full splendor of the glory of God in the promised land. Now, what's ironic about that is that these false prophets would have thought that that's just going to happen through their own conniving and cunning. We're, we're going to take away this land from the, the children eventually. But what was really going to happen was that God was going to remove the full land from all of the people because of the sins of the nation, including the sins of these false prophets. Now, I think there's a powerful lesson in this second point that that we need to kind of pause for a second and make sure that we understand, even in our day and time. And that is this. God never expects His people to act as if sin is not real. And God never expects His people to turn our eyes and act as if injustice is not occurring. Instead, the very opposite is true. God expects His people who are faithful to be a voice for those who have little or no voice in a particular society. I may not be able to stand up against every single injustice that ever occurs. I can't know all of them. And neither can us collective. We can't know every injustice that ever happens in, in our community or our nation and so forth. But if I see an injustice, if I see something that is a, a oppression, am I willing to speak up? Our Lord expects us to stand up for and speak up for those who are, if you please, looked down upon in society. Even if it means... I must stand up against those who have a great deal more power and a great deal more position than I will ever have. It doesn't mean we stand up for sinful things. It means we stand against sinful things that are oppressive and unjust. Micah was one to speak up. Am I? Number three in this chapter, and thankfully a message of hope, is that a remnant is faithful and is known. The chapter ends, verses 12 and 13, talking about that. You know, one of the most encouraging thoughts found scattered throughout the pages of Scripture is that God knows the faithful, even when the faithful may seem to be few and far in between. And that encourages us for a lot of reasons, at least two. First, it encourages us, even in the darkest days, that there are still some who are faithful to the ways of God. In my Sunday morning Bible class, we're surveying the Old Testament, and this morning we were talking about Elijah, and we, we talked about the story where Elijah said to God, I'm the only one left. There's nobody else here who's doing what's, what's right. And he even said, and they're seeking my life to take it. But you remember God said to him, 
I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knees to Baal. In other words, what God was telling Elijah was, it may seem like you're alone, but you're really not. And God was also saying, I know all the faithful. You're one of them, yes, but you're not the only one. And that should encourage us, because at times we can feel as if we're standing alone. But there are others who are striving to do what's right. But it also encourages us because God knows the faithful. He sees when you stand for what is right in the middle of a dark world. He knows every faithful action. And He understands every struggle that we face at times to do what is right in the midst of a world that hates the light and would rather choose darkness. He sees that and He knows that. And so as Micah ends what we know as chapter 2, he writes that not everything in his day was bad. While the overall flow of the kingdom and flow of the nation may be towards immorality and arrogance, there were some who were doing what was right. Notice what he writes in verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in the fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. And then in verse 13, he writes about there being a gate in the middle of the verse. That picture of a gate, by the way, in verse 13, may even be a veiled glimmer of hope there. Because remember last week, we tried to set the stage for this book, at least very briefly. Remember, God would allow the nation to be punished by Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians. And they would lay siege to the city of Jerusalem, which, of course, would impact not just that city, but the whole region, really the whole kingdom. But you remember that as the army was finally ready to enter and basically finish this thing off, the angel of the Lord struck the, the Assyrian army in the night and destroyed them. They were, though, for all intents and purposes, right at the city gate. But God delivered them because he saw a change in the heart of the people. But all that was possible because some were faithful and believing in God through it all. There was a remnant who chose to remain faithful, even in the face of oppression. And in this case, possibly even in the face of military might. There were some who remained close to God, even though their own countrymen were cruel and were arrogant. And God knew and God saw And God was their shepherd every step of the way. Now, what kind of takeaway can we possibly take from Micah chapter 2? It's an ancient story, ancient chapter. It's it's from a totally different culture. I've even mentioned a couple of verses that are very confusing. Even scholars argue back and forth as to how they're supposed to be translated. Is there anything from modern Western society from Micah chapter 2? I think there absolutely is. Yes, the language may be difficult at times. But did you notice how modern a lot of this sounded? Are we not living in times where people, even in our own nation, are often treated as marginal and sometimes are even just used as something for someone else's own growth or own movement up a corporate ladder or to gain position or power? While we do not allow people to complain about being exploited when they're not actually being exploited, exploitation and oppression still goes on. And of all people, Christians need to have our eyes open to the plight of those who are marginalized in society and who are doing nothing wrong. Just consider how often, just by way of example, the Scriptures tell us that God Himself cares for those who are widowed and those who are orphaned. And that those who are faithful to Him are supposed to have that same heart. It's in the Old Testament. 
And it most certainly is in the New Testament. Pure and undefiled religion, James tells us, includes to visit the widows and orphans in their affliction. But how often today are they marginalized? In our world today, in our culture, especially our Western culture, how often are the aged trampled upon? Not necessarily in ways that are violent, but sometimes in ways that are almost corporate or legalized. If there is anyone who should be caring for the aged and making sure they are treated with dignity and with honor and respect, it's the people of God. And that's just one small example. But I think it proves the point that Micah was trying to make centuries ago. But I also think we need to take away from this passage the simple lesson that God knows and that God sees. God knows in a negative way when we turn a blind eye to those who are marginalized and just throw up our hands acting as if there's nothing we can do or there's nothing really bad going on. But thankfully, God also knows and sees when we do what we can to help. When we try to give voice to those who have no voice. When we try to lend a hand to make a difference. If I may make one more point of application for those for whom we need to speak up. Remember how we started this lesson? Those who just seem to always be thinking of doing what's wrong and Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 18 said that one of the things the Lord hates is uh, those who devise wicked plans. In that very same list in Proverbs chapter 6, you remember probably the most infamous one in that list, is hands that shed innocent blood. Folks, if there's anybody in the world that needs to be speaking out for the unborn who have no voice, it's God's people. I can't know every connection I can't know every person, but I can speak up where I can. Because they have no voice. But they can use our voice to be spoken up for. Oppression does not always look like an army arrayed for battle that comes and lays waste to some big city or economic center. That certainly can be a type of oppression, but usually that's what we think about. But oppression can also come from people in suits and ties. Maybe I'll take my suit. No, who just care about the bottom line or just care about their own position in life and who use the system or who use other people and put them down and marginalize and oppress so I can get what I want in life. And yes, sadly, we see that. Even in our modern, tolerant world, we still see it. But Micah reminds us that if there is anyone who should speak up for those who struggle, for those who are oppressed, for those who are marginalized, and for those who have no voice, it is the people of God. We may not know every injustice. We may not know every type of oppression that ever occurs. But each time you and I see someone who is simply living a good life, but is being oppressed in some way, they're not, they're not sinful, they're just oppressed by society in some way, Should the people of God not be the ones who stand up? Should we not be the ones who strive to do whatever we can? Whether it's stopping the oppression or simply writing someone, calling someone, or maybe in more cases than that, just giving a word of encouragement and helping any way we possibly can. I think that's the takeaway from Micah chapter 2. It is sad that we have to have lessons like this in a modern world, in a nation that's supposed to be Christian, at least at its foundation. But we do. But thankfully, there are still people who will stand up 
and who will speak up. And we need to lead that list and lead that charge and give voice for those who have no voice. I tried to think a lot this week about how to extend the Lord's invitation following a lesson like that. But honestly, there's not a real good transition. <laughs> there may be one, but I never thought of it. How do you transition from that into the Lord's invitation? Except to say this. When Jesus hung on the cross. He saved me from the oppression of sin. The ultimate oppression. The ultimate not injustice, because I sinned, I deserve the punishment. But he moved, he allowed me by contacting his blood to move from a place where I will be punished to a place where I can be rewarded for faithfulness. You see, Jesus set the ultimate example. Because we didn't deserve to have a voice, if you will. We didn't deserve any of that. Romans chapter 5 does not just talking about us, talk about us being against God. It says in verse 10, we were his enemies. And yet he died for us. He gave us a way out. But he did that not just so we could be saved. He did that so we could be saved and then use the motivation from that to encourage and help others. And that's how we need to spend our lives. Tonight, if you are not a Christian, if you've not contacted the blood of Christ and the waters of baptism where you're immersed for the forgiveness, the remission of your sins, we certainly invite you to Become a Christian tonight. But tonight, if you are a Christian and something is amiss in your life, you haven't been living the way a Christian should in, in the things we talked about tonight or in some other area of life. You just haven't been living a faithful, a fully faithful life and you need prayers of forgiveness or you need prayers of encouragement. We would love to pray with you and encourage you as much as we possibly can. Tonight, if you need to become a Christian or return in faithfulness, we invite you to come as we stand and sing to encourage you.